is Last Coffee House. We are doing the Ben Shapiro reading list. Brainwash. I know this is new. I just started a Jordan Peterson reading list. I'm starting a Ben Shapiro one now. We're still doing Sam Harris, but why not? Get a whole bunch of different perspectives on books and see where we end up at. But Ben Shapiro, he had like a hundred books on his or something like that. So there were quite a few. We know Sam Harris has like 180. They're only about 20, 30 or something like that on the Jordan Peterson one. So we're just going to go in between, you know, weave in and out of the various book recommenders and hopefully learn just a ton of information. Now, this first book from Ben Shapiro is actually one of his first book. Of course, the author is Ben Shapiro. It's called Brainwashed. It's about the education system in the United States. It was published in 2010. So 10 years ago, he was what, 25 or something like that. So publishing books that that kid, he was precocious. He was really ahead of the curve on that stuff. And one of the things is this is anticipating the whole woke apocalypse that we're suffering now. So he really saw that coming. He couldn't have anticipated the election of our current president and how that would light all of the crazy fires in clown world. But he definitely saw a lot of this stuff coming. Now, when it comes to the book, I'll give my analysis once we get to the end of it. But I really like Ben Shapiro. I like his podcast. I think he has a lot of great things to say. He's very well spoken. He's often funny. His movie taste can be askew for sure. But he's mostly, he will be willing to attack his own side when it's necessary to attack his own side. And he's upfront about his conservatism and religiosity. And so I just think overall, he's a very important voice in the debate, the political debate. But so the book, the book actually gets into, it mostly covers all the topics that you would have kind of heard by now, you know, that have been advertised where you've, if you've ever seen interviews on college campuses nowadays, those videos where people interview and ask questions and then college students give the most ridiculous answers because they're just spitting out the programming that they already have, then you're going to know a lot of the content of this book. Remember, this is 2010 he wrote this. So one of the first things he talks about is the the no moral absolute. So this postmodernist, everything is relative, cultural Marxist kind of thing where nothing means anything and everybody is their own truth and all that nonsense. And he cites one, it was either a lawmaker or a journalist or something like that, talk about how perjury is okay because there are really no moral absolutes in defense of Clinton. And students on campuses in 2010 having trouble just outright condemning Hitler. It- <laughs> And getting into kind of a discussion of relativism and moral relativism and cultural relativism. So that's obviously pretty concerning. And again, we talked about this in the meat eater thing where we were talking about philosophical zeroing. How you say nothing means anything. When it comes to values, there are no, there's no objective way to tether values. It's just, it's a function of you need something to relate to something else. I'm sure we talked about this in some other context as well. But you can't talk on one side from philosophical zero and on the other side from a normative assessment of what's good and what's bad. Those things have to equal when you're trying to make an argument between two things. So I think he's completely right here in calling out the absolute moral relativism that's trying to be sold on college campuses and cultural relativism. Like, you're able to call out cultures for harm that they do based on a normative assessment of values and well-being and rights and equality before the law, those kinds of things. You can use those as methods of normative criticisms of other cultures and the way people act and what people do and all that sort of thing. So 
So anyway, college campuses are more often anti-capitalist now. Kids today have to find some kind of identity. And so what they, they have to be a counterculture in some way because they don't really have anything that defines them. When you have a war, they can define themselves by being anti-war or whatever, or they define themselves by being vegetarian and finding some other, you know, all the oppressed cattle all over the place that they have to liberate. You know, they try to find some kind of identity on that basis. Jordan Peterson had an excellent response where he talked about how people use it for purposes of identity because they can't get their own houses in order. But so I think a lot of it is that we just, uh, capitalism is celebrated outside of educational institutions. You know, it's the reason that we could be so productive and innovative and all that sort of thing. So it makes sense for inside educational institutions. They need something to rebel against. So that seems like the accepted wisdom. So let's rebel against that. But so he, he brings it up that college campuses are really anti-capitalist. He talks about affirmative action. And I think he just made the point because Parasite won Best Picture. And Asian people are only considered minorities when it fits a particular narrative. So it's like, or at least a put upon minority, <laughs> you know, one who's being oppressed in this culture and has to worry about white privilege and all that stuff. It's on the one hand, yay, the, the Asian people are represented in the Oscars and won and all that nonsense, but a Korean student who's trying to get into an Ivy League college is going to be discriminated against <laughs> on that basis, and that's perfectly fine. So it's a curious situation that we're in. But he specifically talked about the UC campus and how affirmative action is actually outlawed in California. However, uh, you have de facto affirmative action that happens on California campuses, where the colleges do it anyway and just cite life experiences. And then he talks about classes, specific classes and most of the book is like this so he'll bring up a particular topic then he'll bring up specific examples that relate to that topic it's not an especially rigorous assessment you know analytically of what's going on here but it's just like here are examples of the thing that I'm talking about he brings up like whiteness classes where they're supposed to talk about whiteness and one of the things that it ends up doing is being incredibly patronizing to minority cultures in the United States and one of the one of the headlines a fake headline that kind of exemplifies the whole idea is world to end women and minorities hit hardest <laughs> which seems to be kind of the modus operandi of, of leftist thinking nowadays and there are questions like why have other immigrant communities done fine whereas some don't do fine and so why do you just get to broadly claim you know it's white privilege or it's racism or whatever else and there's this professor who's trying to destroy whiteness and has this magazine called race trader uh, where they just attack whiteness whatever that is and brings up institutional racism which is of course this weird dogma that is just repeated all over the place but never explained it doesn't have the purpose of being explained doesn't have the purpose of actually meaning anything it'll change meaning i mean at the drop of a hat it'll change what it actually means when you try to pin it down it's really about ideological dogmatism it's not about what's really happening or trying to actually help anybody brings up the assault on grammar which is something that really bothers me <laughs> as well there are differing degrees of it though there are some that are kind of affectionate twists on on the english language and there are some that are just really annoying and not all languages created equal i i will fight that to the death talks about how when you criticize somebody's ability to or how they speak or their grammar or whatever then it hurts their feelings it hurts their self-esteem and eventually it always comes down to if you can't combat the argument then just call it racist and it brings up uh, affirmative action again and how students with lower scores end up getting into colleges they're not really prepared for when it comes to the competition just like if somebody who didn't happen to be a uh, 
minority race or national origin or whatever and get that leg up, if they ended up in that school with those scores, they would struggle as well in the exact same way. So it doesn't really help much of anybody. <laughs> and then he talks about speech. He goes into the whole speech idea and the bans on offensive speech in one college specifically. Not even speech. They <laughs> they banned ogling or inappropriate staring. They said that you could be penalized for that kind of a thing. <laughs> so weird. Of course, bans on offensive speech nowadays on college campuses is kind of a powder keg. There's a lot about how when you, you hear conversations or they have those interviews with college students, a lot of them will say and have this weird idea that there's some kind of special carve out when it comes to hate speech under the First Amendment. There is no such thing. <laughs> They say, yeah, I'm all for free speech, but I'm not for hate speech. That means nothing. That means nothing at all when it comes to a legal standpoint. And obviously, the kind of speech that needs to be protected is the kind of speech that would be offensive. If you only allow, you know, talk about cupcakes and bunnies, then you're not really allowing speech. He goes into talks about race baiting, and he used to do all these, like, interviews on college campuses when he was in college, which is funny. I think he was in college at this time, but maybe not. No, if he was in his mid-20s, he'd probably finished by then. <laughs> anyway, so he talks talked about a conversation he had with a Latino student who came up. Shapiro had this like sign up that said that he thought affirmative action was wrong and this Latino student came up and said that thank you for doing this because now every time like I worked really hard to get here and everybody assumes that I got here before because of affirmative action. It's really patronizing to think that I need an extra leg up because I'm just not capable of it on my own. And I would think that that is much more widespread sentiment than is really advertised because it is incredibly patronizing. It should be incredibly patronizing to think that, oh, well, my group of people needs a special leg up to be able to get get over this. I mean, if there are individuals who are members of admissions committees or whatever who are making horrible decisions based on race and all that, fine, root them out and get rid of them. But this kind of broad policy that says that you get extra points because of your skin color or national origin, that's terrible on its face. And Banna has a, there are large chunks where he talks about sex and how it's treated in the classroom and professors talking about uh, open sex, how sex needs to be open in refugee camps and turning everything to sex and lots of talk about it and just open sex and sex this and sex that and LGBTQ, there was actually a chronicling of this one teacher who took the students to a gay strip club and had sex on stage with a gay stripper and that's supposed to be you know, edifying in some way. Obviously, you gotta know that there are some percentage of these kinds of professors who are just trying to get off on this stuff, which is incredibly concerning. Like, what are you learning from this kind of a thing? And so I'm with him there when it comes to sex in the classroom. There's one method of academically trying to understand this phenomenon versus, oh my gosh, look at us being so subversive and having sex in a classroom or on a field trip. It's just, it's ridiculous. It brings up environmentalism and I know his position on, envir on climate change. I know his position on that, where he accepts the science, even though the consensus is actually, there's a lot behind the 97% that is not talked about and people don't know, but he accepts the science of it. He's just concerned about what do we do and what effect are the things that we're doing going to have, which is a conversation that you virtually never hear from anybody. It's just, we need to do something. Why aren't we doing things? Do the things, do all the things. Rather than if we do this, it's going to have this impact on the climate change that's happening now and it's going to improve these things to this degree or anything like that. You barely 
hear that at all. He brings up how, oh, one student, like, suggested that everybody should have to ride a bike everywhere instead of drive cars. And then Shapiro pointed out this during, like, a class presentation. He's like, well, that completely takes away your choice to be able to choose a car if you want it. And the person was like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> Something that's so obvious. I mean, obviously, when it comes to environmentalism and pushing these kinds of ideological positions, then it's going to dramatically impact what people can choose and not choose. And the whole thing is, long term, you should culturally be getting people to make better choices, rather than tyrannically deciding that this is what you're going to do or not do. And he brings up GMOs, so gen genetically modified organisms. Is it organisms? <laughs> genetically modified. So it's like food and stuff that's gen genetically modified. And uh, I was just, what book was I reading about this? Where it talks about how this is a kind of a scare term that environmentalists use, but and they think that if you take if you take like the a gene out of spinach and put it into oranges then the oranges are going to taste like spinach and which is not how it works. It's just it's mechanical. It's like any other kind of function. It could be a, a gene that helps it grow faster or something like that and make it more plentiful. But GMOs, the genetic modifications actually to the best of our knowledge they don't have any kind of scary things it's just a something that people don't understand but there's this huge anti-gmo movement when it comes to environmentalism that isn't really educated on the subject then he goes into a war on god and this is i mean this is the biggest distinction i have when it comes to ben shapiro i don't think he's honest in any way stretch or form when it comes to religion at least he he keeps it as vague as humanly possible so that he can continue to follow these precepts which i understand he's kind of in a box because religion it seems is extremely important <laughs> to be a binding agent to human beings in general and it's something that now I mean it's something that I would support just for its cultural benefits so I can see where he's kind of in a box but when he makes arguments related to religion like when it comes to the moral argument or something like that it's just nonsense it's such nonsense and when it comes to moral absolutes and all that complete nonsense and so it makes it really hard because in this particular category, I just think he goes off the deep end and isn't intellectually rigorous, but in virtually everything else, I think he's he's pretty on point, and he at least supports his positions really well. So, anyway, but, so he talks about creationism, and that being taught alongside evolution, and he seemed, he didn't, like, outright say it should be or something like that, but he uses examples of teachers teaching creationism, and seems to be sympathetic to those teachers, which is pure insanity. I mean, that's something that, no, no Nobody should be on the side of creationism right up next to evolution. It's not anywhere near a science. It's not even trying to be a science. It's not falsifiable. It's It doesn't even answer questions that we're asking. It's just magic did the thing and personal personal incredulity fallacy. It's, it's completely nonsense. But he talks about how certain schools wouldn't get accreditation even if they otherwise had the things that they needed, but they believed in God or wanted to share creationism or something like that. So, I don't know. Uh, I mean, like I said, for one, culturally, I want more religion, just in general. <laughs> just the most innocuous versions of the religions. <laughs> he talks about anti-Christian attacks on campuses, which I could absolutely see that. I mean, Christianity itself. I used to give them hell for whining about persecution complexes, and now they're actually being persecuted. I mean, especially in places like China and other places. But even here on college campuses, if you're an out-and-out -out Christian, you do get kind of attacked. I don't think that's right. <laughs> uh, I think 
think you should be able to have whatever beliefs you want to have. And there's this whole, another thing against Christianity and religion in general is this whole open sex culture on campus. So I, I'm a, I'm with him on that one. That seems to be something that's really advocated strongly. And so if you have those traditional Christian ideas or beliefs, then it's tough to have that just shoved on you constantly. And abortion, abortion is another one where it's, it's just dogmatically held that it needs to be one way and then people just attack you if you think otherwise. And I think the ones that are more dogmatic are the ones that people attack emotionally and attack you personally more often. Then he goes into more anti-Americanism, like burning the flag. He talks about 9-11 and how people, professors went directly to blaming America. I think there's a statistic he brought up earlier where he talks about how 84% of professors voted for Al Gore in that election, which is a huge percentage when it comes to the breakdown of ideologies, political leanings. And that's one thing, because uh, he brings up Chomsky later, who's just vitriolic, rabid, anti-American, and you saw it in this conversation with Sam Harris, where Chomsky and Sam Harris had discussions about whether America accidentally killing civilians is as bad as terrorists deliberately killing civilians. Now, in any sensible argument, that's an easy question to answer, and there shouldn't even be a discussion about it, but in their discussion, in Chomsky and Sam Harris's discussion, it wasn't. Chomsky rejected that premise and just said that, no, America's worst. It's the worst thing ever. Da, 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 for all sorts of rationalizations. So just craziness. But I actually had a professor. I remember we were reading, we read a bunch of books. One was Epic Encounters. One after that, I can't remember what it was called, but in class, I was talking about how, well, for these reasons, I think it's, it's biased. And for these reasons, I think it might not be, it's doing a better job. And the teacher got annoyed with me and he was like, well, just don't care about whether it's biased or not. Just take the information. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, obviously that's extremely important to know whether the thing is biased or not. And all the students were agreeing with me as I was going along. And then the teacher just shot in and was just like, no, don't care about whether it's biased. What are you saying to me right now? But so in this, when it came to 9-11, he brought up all these examples of professors who were blaming the United States for it and saying it was their fault and, and saying how terrible America was. And this is an early strain from 2001, an early strain all the way up until today of calling America the worst thing ever. Then he goes into Israel. Obviously, Ben, he is Jewish and practicing Jewish. And so he has a lot to talk about when it comes to Israel. He had a great explanation recently when, when the president came out with his plan for Israel and Palestine. And Ben had this whole long thing talking about it. He tries to make a distinction. He's like, you can criticize Israel, but saying it shouldn't exist is anti-Semitic. I think that's a reasonable distinction to make. And he talks about this Daily Bruin fight when he was writing for the Daily Bruin. And they wouldn't publish one of his articles about what people had said about Israel. And he got into this big row over whether this thing could be published. He went on Larry Elder's show and just talked about the article and the issue with the Daily Bruin. And there was this whole thing, you know, then he got penalized and he was kicked off for a couple of semesters and just a bunch of stuff. And then he gives some prescriptions about what schools need to do now. And he wants school, he wants moderate schools to be built where it's even ideological split. He wants conservatives to redirect their funds to those moderate schools and have a new ranking system for schools so they can get that prestige a ranking system based on like postgraduate employment and, and other metrics you know that are more objective and, and rather than just what students give back to the college and that sort of thing and he wants the schools to not take any money <laughs> 
uh, from the government so they don't have those restrictions on what they can and can't do. So anyway, uh, my analysis, it wasn't especially rigorous, you know, like scientifically trying to figure out what's really going on statistically in any of these schools. Now, what he's saying seems to reflect the biases on college campuses that I've seen just in general. I mean, it's an open bias. It's not like it's under wraps. I mean, the professors are absolutely overwhelmingly liberal. The students themselves generally become more liberal when they go to these schools. They are more indoctrination farms, especially nowadays, it seems, than they are institutions teaching people how to think or even giving them a bunch of useful information or anything like that. <laughs> I know the president recently talked about how he wanted more trade schools and things like that, that people could have better access to. I'm 100% for that. We need to get all of this money is just shooting up from the government. All this money is shooting up the cost of education and it's not tethered to the value of the education itself. So it, oh, it's so bad. But I mostly agree with a lot of the conclusions that he comes up with. He uses, you know, some studies, some surveys, some personal experience, and it's just a mixture of that. Like I said, it's not especially rigorous, but it's an enjoyable enough read. And fun, this is the first book I've ever read by Ben Shapiro. And oddly enough, he writes like he talks, you know, it's, it's very literate and it's very to the point and it's often funny. There are, but it's, it's pretty colloquial. It's not like, it's not Nietzsche. It's not... <laughs> It's not poetic, it's not especially clever or really trying to write sentences for all time that people are going to be quoting, you know, from here on. It's mostly just kind of, okay, here's what's going on, let's get through this, let's just to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, let's get all this stuff down. It's more that kind of a structure, you know, like he talks. So, I'm okay with it. I'm looking forward to reading more of his books, you know, especially as he's matured as a political thinker and philosopher and all that sort of thing. So, we'll see how they turn out later, but otherwise, you know, it's Ben Shapiro. It mostly surveys kind of people's understanding of where college campuses are now, and it might be more worth it to read a book that's more current about these kinds of issues. But like I said, this is anticipating everything that we know now. So reading this in 2010 probably would have been like mind blowing, and then it would have been so prescient seeing it all come to task and and be elucidated through you know all the cultural stuff that has happened since then, especially in like 2017. 2018. But I don't know if you necessarily need to read the whole thing. Uh, obviously, we're, Ben Shapiro doesn't only have his books on his reading list, but he has a lot of them. So <laughs> a lot of his, his books on there. So we'll go back and forth and we'll still do Jordan Peterson reading list, still do Sam Harris. And we've still got the greatest works of literature of all time that we're getting through. I just finished another one. So we'll have that one coming up soon. Anyway, that was that's Ben Shapiro brainwashed. If you want to, you can go check it out. Otherwise, I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.